everyone, welcome to Flywheel Pod, your number one source for everything Frax, DeFi, and everything in between. If you want to know what's going on in the world on chain, you've come to the right place. This is DeFi Dave, here with Capital K. We're here to help you harness the power of the flywheel. And uh, damn, yesterday we really did harness the power of the flywheel with uh, Tarot, the founder of ZigZag. Um, he is kind of a contradiction in a person. He is one of the most cutting-edge developers in all of DeFi. Uh, probably the only dev that knows how to code and build on ZK Sync 1.0 and also is building on Cairo. But paradoxically, is a Bitcoin maximalist. He only holds Bitcoin. Um, Kit, what are your thoughts on the uh, interview yesterday? Yeah, man, I, I think it was actually one of our most fluid conversation yet. I think you and I are starting to get a hang of this uh, podcasting thing. You know, we definitely dictated the flow. I Maybe a little bit. We, Maybe a little bit. Just a little, just a little. Uh, I loved how we were able to touch on, obviously, ZigZag Exchange. Then we drilled deeper into him as a person. That's how we found out that he is a living contradictory between being on the bleeding edge of ETH, but yet his bags are only BTC. And then, you know, we, we took a, a deep look at the macro outlook as well, too. So that was a really well-rounded podcast, I'd say. Yeah. It was honestly really refreshing to hear something that's, you know, kind of straight away from the standard ETH party line, because we're so used to hearing like ETH is the ETH is money, ETH is this, ETH is that. But like sometimes we got to take like a hard look and see like, let's be critical of ourselves. Like, where do we have our blind spots? And like when you get dogmatic, sometimes you forget like that. Like I know like I'm a fraxman through and through, but like I am like super open to like any criticisms and stuff, or at least try to be. No, and I think it's, it's very critical that he, t for his um, like personal assets, right? Like his net worth is different from his <laughs> daily, everyday volatility, which is on, you know, on ETH yeah. and building on ETH. Like that's very exactly. sobering a way to, to think. He's so logical. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, very um, intelligent individual. And, you know, we'll get right into the interview. Um, for everyone watching, don't forget to subscribe. We're at almost 650 subscribers on YouTube. And make sure you hit that bell, turn on those notifications, so you know every time we have a podcast on. Um, you can follow us at FlywheelPod on Twitter. Join our Telegram group at FlywheelPod. And you can follow me on Twitter at DeFiDave22. And you can follow me at 0x capital underscore K. And let's get this interview started. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Tarot, the founder of ZigZag, an exchange that's on ZK Rollups and Arbitrum. Tarot, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. And what makes ZigZag different from other exchanges on Rollups and Mainnet is it's actually an order book, um, which is a design you'd only really see in the centralized world. And so, like, Tarot, can you give us like a little bit of your background and how ZigZag started? Okay, yeah. Um, I used to work on OTC desk. So before I started ZigZag, I was working on a platform that did RFQs, so uh, requests for quote systems for uh, emerging markets, essentially. Um, we would price things in emerging market currencies for crypto. Um, and we were one of the larger liquidity providers for it. Um, I got into, you know, ZigZag, the idea when I thought of the idea of, okay, you know, we have this RFQ system, we have all this. What if we tried to decentralize this and start coming up with a system that could work in a little bit more of a DeFi sense and like, you know, use the expertise I have in like 
uh, building like, you know, exchange infrastructure and stuff and trying to like port it over to DeFi. Um, I saw that there wasn't too many people building actual exchanges on DeFi. Um, they were building, you know, AMMs and things like that. So I thought maybe there was a bit of a market opportunity for something like ZigZag. Yeah. And when did you start building it? And you were pretty early to ZK Sync and Starknet. Um, like, honestly, the first ones, I think when ZigZag came about, you guys were the only ones. And you, it's kind of like all the stars aligned and just everything was perfect. And ZigZag just took off. I feel like everyone just saw it on their timeline. Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. Um, I started developing the project in October of 2021. Um, and ZK Sync 1.0 launched in August of 2021. Um, and when I launched it in November, it just kind of took off. And even to this day, it actually, we're the only, because the ZK Sync system is like very, what would I say? You can't reuse the code from ZK Sync 1.0 anywhere else, um, which, you know, stopped a lot of other people from developing on the platform. Um, and it's a very like, you know, it's just a system where you have to like build a lot of custom tooling and stuff like that. So we're the only exchange on ZK Sync right now. Um, and we're preparing, like, you know, we just launched an Arbitrum as well. So we're trying to like expand out the EVM now. Nice, nice. And what has been your experience, um, building on ZK Sync and StarkNet? Um, cause there's like some action there and like people are always like hyping up ZK rollups, like that's the future, but like. The future is here. Like you're literally building on it. So, like, what has your experience been? So, Starknet is not quite ready. Um, okay. We've tried building on it. It's not quite ready to go. Um, so, we've never actually deployed a production thing on it. Um, ZK Sync, the 2.0 that's getting hyped up a lot, is also still not ready. Um, we haven't even deployed the testnet on it. I don't. They're saying it'll be ready in 90 days, but you know, I'm not sure. We'll see. Um, and how is your yeah. How was yeah. your development experience between Arbitrum and ZK Sync? Arbitrum is a typical EVM chain, so it's been very standard. And Arbitrum, the uh, the RPC endpoints are excellent. They're some of the fastest endpoints coming out. So I think that's a lot of the incentive for people, like developers at least, to use Arbitrum is when you send a transaction to Arbitrum, it returns in like half a second. Um, ZK Sync is similar. ZK Sync 1.0, it's not EVM, but the, the speeds are so fast. Uh, you send a transaction, you get a response back in like half a second or a second. So it's really motivating for like building like an order book or something like that, which requires fast order, you know, response times. Um, that kind of infrastructure is appealing. Cool, cool. And so what can you give us like a little bit more background on like what you've seen in your users? Like, what do you think like made uh, zigzag blow up so much like out of nowhere because you guys didn't really have any marketing it was all very organic so can you give like a little bit of background in like your users and like what you think your keys to success were okay our users are actually very very different from who i initially thought we would get my initial goal was to get um professional traders to come over to zk sync uh, i thought we would offer really low fees and like latencies and stuff like that and we try and convince like pros to come in to trade size what ended up happening instead is that the pros prefer to just trade on the centralized exchanges um, and they can afford the the high gas fees of the uh, the L1. So they don't really want to trade off the security of L1 to come to L2. What we ended up getting was just like thousands of like very small accounts. Um, we have we don't charge a fee on ZK Sync because we can't. The infrastructure isn't set up that way. Um, 
our spreads are razor thin. We charge like less than zero point. You know, at one point we were charging like 0.005% of spread or something like that. Um, and the fees are super cheap. Like right now the fees sitting at 10 cents for CK sync. Um, so users that want to trade like a hundred bucks, 200 bucks at a time. Um, these guys found that our platform is beyond, you know, including centralized exchanges, the best platform for them to trade on. Um, so we've seen a huge influx of users from there. I mean, at the peak, we had 20,000 users a day using our site. Um, we're wow. down right now to closer to maybe like, you know, 4,000 or so per day. But I think, um, if you look up the stats, we're still the largest DAP on L2. Um, we're larger than any of the Arbitrum dApps, except like some game that has like thousands of users, but I don't know how much like, you know, value those guys really transact. Um, but in general, we just, we have the most users on L2 still. So that's something I'm pretty proud of is that we serve more users than almost any other dApp out there. Even some of the ones that have like much larger presences than we do. Yeah. It seems like everyone's trying to save money, honestly. And like, it seems like your target audience is people. It's kind of like you guys are decentralized Binance in a way, in the sense that like Binance has people from international and all over the world as their like main customer base. Like it's the same thing with you guys because you guys are just easy to use and cheap. And I think like those are the two most important things, especially when it comes to adoption of DeFi. Yeah, I'd so like, you know, maybe 2% of our users are from like Europe and America. Mostly it's China, India, Turkey, um, a couple other spots. Yeah, so like they figured out ZK Sync like pretty easy. Like, I didn't realize that. Like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, these guys are savvy. I mean, it's the savvier end of the, uh, it's very, you know, crypto savvy user. We're not getting like the, you know, the Coinbase user that barely understands what crypto is. We're getting the, I'm in crypto. I understand it really well. I airdrop hunt a lot, um, but I don't have a big account. You know, I, I just trade small amounts. That's the sort of user we get. Yeah. That's, what are some that's of the interesting yeah. niche? Um, I, I was going to say, like, I, I'm looking at all the pairs you guys offer, and it's actually a lot of pairs. And I'm actually very surprised that like, you're going to yeah. give your users everything. What was your, you know, listing strategy, or do you just kind of let the permissionless listing? Uh, we would go on Twitter every few days, and we'd be like, "Hey, what pair do you guys want to see next?" And the <laughs> users would tell us something, and we'd list it. That was it. Now we just we ran that in the cycle wow. for like three months until the bear market hit, and then. Then everybody just kind of lost interest in trading and we're like, all right, we'll kind of chill out. We delisted like half our coins, actually. Um, wow. Well, we didn't delist them. Yeah, we just stopped offering our like, we stopped offering liquidity on it. Some of our users, so we have 150 market makers on our site and they're free to offer whatever pairs they want. They don't have to go through it. It's permissionless. So there's a lot of pairs that we don't market make anymore, but that users wanted to see active and someone just kind of picked it up and started market making. That's some really good A-B testing right there. Just, yeah, <laughs> like using Twitter to the to like the fullest right there. Honestly, yeah, Twitter Twitter is a powerful tool, man. Um, we would we couldn't have made Zigzag happen without Twitter. Like, wow, it's it's our primary platform to like get users. Can you go into that further? Like, what do you yeah. think like made Twitter so powerful? Uh, you're able to communicate directly with your users. So, like, in a platform where everyone is already there. Uh, with Discord, you need everyone to join your Discord. So there's like a little additional step. Um, and we do like do a lot of support in Discord and stuff. But when it comes to just like communicating with people, like, what do you want to see? The fastest way is to just go on Twitter um, and just ask like, hey, you know, put out a poll and be like, what do you guys want to see next? Um, and votes will come in like, you know, hundreds an hour and you can see immediately what, what your users are trying to, trying to get. 
Yeah. Honestly, I always thought of Discord as like really as a really great platform to be kind of like a Zen desk in a way because you just can like easily go to like a sport channel and like they can lead you in this and that. And like if you want to interface with not just like your returning users, but new users, Twitter's definitely the way to go. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. So what do you think, like, so you said before that you did a lot of market making in OTC, well, OTC desk stuff in, uh, central, in like centralized finance in crypto before you started ZigZag. What are some of the main differences you see, like, being, like, on an OTC desk and then, like, running an order book, a decentralized order book? The biggest difference is in an OTC desk, you are you're the person that clears the trades. So the desk clears the trades on their own. So when you hit accept on our like RFQ platform, um, you would instantly get a trade. You know, the trade would go through immediately because you were just trading against us. Um, on a decentralized exchange, once the order gets placed, it then has to clear through the chain. Um, so there's that additional step of like, if you're on L1, that could take up to 30 seconds. If you're on these L2s, it still takes like two seconds and then you have to check the chain to see whether the order accepted or rejected, um, you're not in complete control of the accepts and the rejects on the chain. So there's a lot of extra logic that goes into that. And it makes the user experience a lot clunkier um, than a centralized exchange would. So there's trade-offs. Um, you know, you get the decentralization and security as return, but it's definitely smoother trading on a centralized platform, yeah. even today. What is ZigZag doing to make the experience less clunky, if possible? Uh, we added a whole bunch of like art our clearing times are really fast. Like on ZK Sync, they're like half a second or a second. So you don't really feel it. Like if you're used to using Uniswap and waiting for 20 seconds or whatever, when you're on ZigZag, you almost feel like you're on a DEX, on, on a like a centralized exchange because those guys take like, you know, a quarter second to get you a response on whether your trade went through or not. Uh, if we can do half a second, it's like starting to get close to that level. Um, our users have been pretty happy with it, I think. Yeah. And where do you see zigzag fitting as a money lego in the wider DeFi stack i mean like you guys were on zk sync before so you guys you really guys couldn't fit into anything because nothing was else was on zk sync 1.0 it just wasn't possible but on arbitrum like there's some like real interesting op like ways that you guys could like possibly fit in with like other protocols like where do you see zigzag fitting in uh in like the whole DeFi stack okay one thing we've seen is on arbitrum our prices and our our prices are far more accurate than something like Uniswap because Uniswap, for a repricing to occur on Uniswap, a trade has to occur. Um, for a repricing to occur on ZigZag, a trade doesn't have to occur. Our market makers just have to update their quotes. Um, so we've seen a lot of arbitrage activity between our platform and AMMs. So to keep the AMMs more honest and like keep the prices more accurate on AMMs, you need somewhere to rebalance. Um, you could do it on a centralized exchange, but then... You have the problem of you have to keep liquidity available on both the exchange and on the AMM, on the Arbitrum. But if you do it directly through us, the uh, you can rebalance directly within your address itself. Yeah. Um, so like if you're running the arbitrage, you don't have to take on, you don't have, you don't need the additional liquidity of also being on a centralized exchange and stuff. Like the swaps occur on the same platform and you can just rebalance your address really quickly. So we're starting to see traffic like that flow in. Um, yeah. For like larger order sizes. So what are your thoughts on AMMs just straight up? Like, wh where do you think they fit in? I think they're great. I think they're like the best thing for like illiquid markets, small markets, um, markets that don't need to reprice very often. Like, I think, I, I think an order book will never beat an AMM on a stable swap. 
So I think mm -hmm. Curve has like one of the most like unbeatable moats in crypto um, because you can't you can't beat that pricing like you know because of the way like they get you know a billion dollars of liquidity on one side within like two bips three bips something like that like it doesn't matter you can have an order book and do that but it's just not going to give you a ton of advantage like the the AMM makes more sense in that sense you think um, yeah do you think it's better than like Uniswap B three concentrated liquidity. Um, no, I mean, that, that's great too. Yeah. Like any AMM for any, um, stable, uh, like pair where the repricing isn't necessary, um, is going to be better than Norbo in my opinion. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. Like AMM is good for long-term assets. I mean, yeah, long tail assets or the book's good for like your blue chips and more popular ones. Um, Kit, did you have a question? Yeah, I was going to ask, is ZigZag planning on offering um, perps and kind of all the other types of instruments as well? Yeah, we're going to do perps eventually. Got it. So, so how do you guys going to compete against, like, say, the likes of GMX or, or you know, or uh, Tracer or Mycelium? Um, okay. Yeah, um, GMX. So I guess I go through, you know, what the, the flaw of GMX is they give you great pricing. But they almost give you too good of pricing. Um, their <laughs> their their um, entire liquidity pool is available to buy and sell against with no slippage, which sounds kind of insane to me. Because like if your pool gets up to like a hundred million dollars, and something like you know they're using just a simple Oracle price. So let's say a flash crash occurs, it's not a flash crash, but it's just like, you know, one of those like, you know, really severe days happens where we go down like 12, 15%. Usually as a market maker, what you do at that point is you widen your, you widen your spreads out. Mm -hmm. um, you start offering worse pricing, lower liquidity, um, just cause you don't know where the market's gonna go and it's highly volatile. If you're GMX and you're offering, I'm not positive this is how it works, but this is how I understand how it works, is if the price goes down to like, you know, like let's say ETH dips to, Today it's at fifteen twenty seven right now. Let's say it dips to fourteen sixty right now. Um, on a centralized exchange, like if you go on FTX, you'll see this like very like obviously, the spreads will blow out and the liquidity will drop. On GMX, you can fill that hundred million right at the bottom, like the pico bottom. Um, the entire LP pool could just get filled at that price. So, it seems to me like. In the long run, someone's gonna figure that out, or some whale with enough size yeah. to actually like trade well, because the GLP token relies essentially on your traders being like real fools, like getting liquidated repeatedly. <laughs> like that's why the GLP token is so lucrative. Is if you look at the PNL of GMX traders, it's just absolutely awful. Down only, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, down only, down right? only, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that doesn't last in the long run. As you get more sophisticated traders coming to your markets, you're going to get really good traders showing up. And good traders are going to win their trades. Um, so if you have bad pricing mechanisms in the long run, I think you end up getting just wiped out in some kind of tail event where someone goes long, let's say, you know, on a 10% dip, holds it for a 20%, like, you know, uh, rise or something, and then clears the position, the MMs are down, market makers are down, uh, the LP token should be down 20% at that point. In a single day, you could get wiped out like that. Um, so I'm a little skeptical that the GMX model can last for longer trade, longer size. If they cap the sizes, that makes sense to me. Like you could say, okay, no more than a million per certain, or mo no more than maybe 10 million every like, you know, two minutes or something. Um, that could be something where like, you know, you cap the risk that your LPs can take. But 
the way they're going right now, I'm not entirely, but like if you gave me enough money, I would definitely take a chance at like running the LP book on the GMX. I would try and like take a position that was at least very risky to them. There's no guarantee I'd win, you know, like I'm not a great trader. I'm not going to like, you know, directionally win. Somebody who's better than me might, but I could put the risk on the book immediately. I could be like, hey, you know, go on Twitter and be like, hey, I just took a $50 million long position against the entire GLP like liquidity pool. There's an extreme amount of risk available in the pool right now. Um, I'm going to hold this position for a plus 50 or a minus 50%. So you're either going to make 50% or lose, you know, lose 50%. Is that a risk you want to take in his LP? You might not want to take that risk as an LP and you might start withdrawing your funds at that point. So something like that. I don't know. Like there's things you could do if you wanted. Um, the point being behind that is that the, I've been designing a system right now for ZigZag V3 that kind of gets around those issues where you, you have like one, we're trying to set up multiple vaults instead of one. So we're trying to have every market maker run their own vault. Um, so there isn't like the weakness of GMX I've seen through their like pricing model is that there's a single team member who runs the keeper. There's a single team member who runs the watcher. And those guys are the price setters for the entire protocol. So you wow. have this. Yeah. And, and there's not a sophisticated pricing mechanism. They grab the price feeds from a bunch of different um exchanges and they just say okay this is like the mid price and we're going to offer 0.1% off of that as a fee and our entire book is available at that price um not a great pricing mechanism so what we're trying to do is we're trying to come up with a system where there's multiple vaults every market maker runs their own vault um and market makers kind of compete for liquidity so users can pick which vault they want to deposit into so let's say wintermute folkbang and um you know a couple other guys are running vaults uh, and you see that Wintermute is doing a great job pricing and they're not losing a lot of money over the last like, week. You want to deposit with them instead of with Folkbank. Um, and we're going to let the market makers limit the size they offer at every, at every level. So you can have a $100 million vault, but you can only put $2 million up for it you know, at, any, at any specific time. Are you going to put $2 million in the vault or you can only trade against like, it, like $2 million? Again? So... We're, we're going to have it so that they can sign orders. So the market makers can say only $2 million is available at this price. If you want, you know, $4 million of size, we'll just charge you a higher price or something like that. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Or, or like another market maker could offer more at that price, right? Like that specific yeah, vault. Exactly. Yeah, then you can have the market makers and their vaults yeah. compete. Then, yeah, then you have price competition and then you essentially yeah. have an order book, which yeah. is what's missing. You know, that's, that's my, the long-term scheme for how I think an on-chain order book is going to work is like that. Um, not the system we have set up currently with zigzag, um, which is good. It's not terrible, but it's like, it suffers from the problem that we're the ones doing the order matching on in the, uh, in a server. So we have a server that does the order matching right now. I don't think like from a regulatory perspective, that's not going to fly if our volume goes above, you know, a certain amount. Um, so long-term, I expect the matching to happen on the front end, not on the back end. Got what do you it. mean? Like on the, on the front end, like where's, um, so these market makers with these vaults would bend quotes okay. with ex expirations of like 15 seconds or something. And we would display it in some kind of order book format in the front end. And the user would fill the quotes themselves. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. Got it. Okay. How does that, is that similar to like Hashflow or like Matcha? Yeah, it's actually very similar to Hashflow. I looked up Hashflow and like, I wrote the design for this and then someone pointed me to Hashflow and I was like, wow, this sounds very similar, but they're closed source, which... Oh, no. they're closed source. No. 
Yeah, yeah, I haven't found their code at least. Wait, that's so weird. That's so like anti like anything built on eth eth ethos. <laughs> yeah, these guys are, they're a professional firm. I think the guys that came up with this. So they yeah. they're like more of the closed source guys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are there other aspects of V three that are being built? Uh, there's going to be liquidity vaults. It's going to be these market makers, you know, pricing things and a fully decentralized like front end back end. Um. Mm. The one thing that, yeah, we're going to take, there's a router that's going to exist. So you're going to have to have a router like 0x or something like that. But instead of us running the router, we're going to put the router on Akash network. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. I remember Akash from like 2017. Yeah. yeah. What made you choose Akash and not like, what's the difference between like Akash and Arweave? No, Arweave is storage. Is Akash like computation, like ICP? Yep. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, it's just like random dudes running servers. So you can just like, you know, take the router and stick it on like three of those servers and be like, okay, you yeah, know, it's running in three. I'll choose, you know, three countries that are like less likely to get shut down. Yeah. That's probably what I would choose. Yeah. I like this a lot because I mean, especially with the whole tornado cash debacle, like the need to like decentralize all parts of the stack, front end, back end, um, has, is now more important than ever because it's like, the issues like here in front of us. And so it's mm -hmm. good that you guys are being proactive in that. Yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to ask, could you share some, um, I guess, tidbits about the zigzags tokenomics, or I guess planning on having a token, you know, they, uh, part of GMX's appeal and attraction is the fact that they have a token and you can farm the hell out of it. And you know how that game goes. Right. Um, yeah, we, we have a token that's out. Um, we don't have any tokenomics out for it yet. Um, the reason is we didn't have any fees coming into the platform until lately. Um, now we're at like thousand dollars a day in fees, you know, nothing significant, but, um, right now the plan is to, we're doing 0.05% fees. We're just going to take all the fees and do buybacks of zigzag with it. Um, oh. kind of like syrup does. Okay. Um, Later on, if we get time, we might try and do like staking contracts or something like that. Mm. How do you think you guys compare to Serum? I'm honest, like, and yeah, how do you guys think you compare to Serum? Um, they're on, they're fully on chain. Yeah, they're on Solana, so they have like a huge throughput advantage over us. Oh, okay. Um. But the downside is you're using wrap tokens on Solana, which is very risky because something like wormhole could get exploited and then yeah. you're looking at, you know, large losses from there. Right. So like jump's going to back it again and again. Yeah. It's better right. time. <laughs> yeah. They've shown they're, yeah. Right. They've shown that they're willing to just stop backing something, you know, with yeah. Terra, like, oh, okay. No longer backed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So what are some of your experiences as a trader? Um, like what have you like learned in the past and like, what are some things you wish you knew? Oh, uh, what have I learned in the past? Don't use leverage. Don't use leverage. Uh, Very important. Yeah. Um, it's okay to be in a cash position. Um, like not trading is a form of a trade, uh, having like, you know, long periods of time where you're in a cash position is perfectly fine. And if you're trading well, it's sometimes like that is like, you know, 
the right way to do things is to just wait for the right trade to come and take it instead of trying to like place a trade on every day or something like that. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people think like that. When people think of trading, at least like I know for me when I was like younger, it was just, oh, like I always have to be doing something. I think that was just like my ADHD, just like I need to just keep clicking buttons and trading this and that. But like, that's how you, you don't, you lose money. So I like that idea of like being in cash is a trade in itself. Yep. Yeah. I always remind myself cash is a position. It literally shows up as a line item. You know, it is a position. <laughs> yeah. So I I want to take a step back and you know learn more about you, T. Like, um, like what made you have the uh, motivation to start a decentralized central limit order book exchange, and what made you get into crypto? Let's take a step even further back. Like, you know, why okay. are you building here? Yeah. Um, okay. Going way back. How did I yeah. get into crypto? Um, I read the Bitcoin white paper in like 2013, 2012. Um, I thought it was like the coolest thing I'd ever read. Um, so I always had like the dream of getting into crypto, but it seemed like kind of a non-viable profession for a while. So I was like, all right, I'll go get a real job. I'll come back. I'll see what happens. Uh, at some point, I just got really tired of doing like real jobs and I was like, screw it. I'm going to do crypto even if I'm like, you know, kind of broke for a little bit doing it. Um, so that's how I started is like uh, 2016 or so. I got into Ethereum late 2016. Um, and I wrote the first thing I did in crypto was like I, I learned Solidity and stuff back when like nobody was using Solidity and the language was like really difficult to use. Um, so I my see, first that's thought was, a, okay. that's a trend with you. You like to use things when they're super difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like, you know, if you're, if you're a good engineer, that's your advantage. Like if you find a system that's very difficult to use and no one else wants to use it, then you're, you essentially have a monopoly on it. Like we're a, her monopoly on ZK sync right now. We can do whatever we want. Um, it actually upsets me a little bit that like ZK sync 2.0 is on, um, EVM is like going to be EVM compatible because the competition goes way up. Um, you get all sorts of other people coming in. Um, it kind of excites me that Starknet is in Cairo because that's a huge moat for people to get over. So I'm like, all right, there's another system where we can have an edge and we can go in and kind of try and take over the market again. Um, so maybe that's our strategy, like long-term is to just keep attacking difficult markets. But the first thing I did in Ethereum, when I got into Ethereum, I was like, okay, it's difficult language to use. There's not a lot of applicability to this yet. I don't know what you do with this stuff. Like I built a sports betting platform in like 2017 that zero users, you know, nobody wanted it. And I was like, all right, screw this. This sucks. Um, but I was like, <laughs> I learned a lot from it. Actually, I built an on-chain, I built an on-chain matching platform for that. So I built a fully decentralized order book on Ethereum. And then I realized like gas fees are out of control. Like if you do that, like it was like a million gas or something for me to clear an order. Um, wow. Uh, so it was like, okay, it's a terrible idea, but I learned enough about Solidity to be like, okay, I'm probably like one of the world's best Solidity devs in, right now. Um, there should be more Solidity devs. Let me like do educational content. So I wrote a book on Solidity that was like, you know, I don't want to give the name because then it'll, you know, reveal who I am. But, um, I wrote a book on Solidity and like, that was kind of the first thing I did to get into the space. And then from there, I just kind of like, you know. Started doing consulting and got into like, yeah, more crypto stuff from there. Got it. Like, and did you want to do this because you felt like finance was so 
open. Like, TradFi was so opaque and you wanted to come and have a more permissionless system or like, what was your, your, your motivation for jumping into crypto? It can't be just reading the Bitcoin white paper being like, yo, this shit's cool. What is your why? Yeah. My why behind crypto? Uh, no, I mean, when I got into crypto in 2013, there was no like Binance or anything like yeah. that. It was just uh the bitcoin was it like you know i read the bitcoin white paper and i truly thought this is like actually a system that could work to be like outside of the rails of the financial system you know built a it was it was kind of idealistic uh coming in um yeah because binance didn't launch until like 2017 mm-hmm. right correct 16, yeah. 17? yeah yeah 17 18 um, yeah so for zigzag my motivation was like more along the lines of like oh okay you know all these centralized exchanges have a ton of counterparty risk. Um, they like, you know, like 2017 was like the, the golden age of like, you stick your money on somewhere and like, you don't know whether it's going to exist there the next day. Like big rail was like, Cointopia. Yeah. Whatever it was. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, what a, dude, we got rugged on so many exchanges and I was like, well, there should be an exchange where there's no counterparty risk. That makes a lot of sense to me. Rug free. Um, okay. Yeah. Rug yeah. free. Got it. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then, because uh, I'm looking at your guys' uh, let's jump back into Zigzag now. And I'm looking at your guys' Discord, and you have like 20,000 plus members in here. Could you walk yeah. me through, like, like, like you said, like, you know, ZK Sync is a really far corner of the crypto universe, <laughs> but you managed to suck in 20,000 members into your Discord. Like, what was your marketing strategy or, or growth strategy to kind of attract all these folks? I'll admit, I was not the marketing guy. Um, <laughs> there's a group of three other guys who found the uh-huh. project. Um, maybe more than that, you know, four or five guys. They found the project and they're like, hey, we'll do everything except the coding. Just let us handle it. And I was like, all right, you know, here's the Discord. Here's the Twitter. Go at it. Um, they're just, I guess they're, they're just really good at running community stuff. Um, so they ran the number up from, I didn't even have a discord when they, they came on, I was on telegram and I had like 50 users on telegram. Um, and they're like, let us run the discord. And they just started doing all kinds of like, you know, community events and things like that. Wow. And I guess, you know, ZK sync was just a hot thing at the time and people really took to it. Um, yeah. We didn't spend any money on marketing though. Like essentially our marketing spend was zero. It was all mostly organic. It was just right place at the right time kind of thing. No marketing, marketing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Best building marketing a, is like. Yeah. Building a really good product that people use the old fashioned way. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was really what got people on board is they really liked our product. They, that now like our sentiment is so much worse. Like the moment we said we weren't doing an airdrop or that, not that we weren't doing an airdrop, but that we we're going to do an airdrop immediately. Our sentiment is like in the gutters. Like if you go uh, through our Twitter account right now, like the responses are just like scammer, Chinese scammer. <laughs> like I'm not Chinese. I don't know what you're calling me a Chinese <laughs> scammer. Just call me a scammer. I can understand that. Dude, um, <laughs> I know. Some, sometimes like the sense of entitlement in crypto is crazy. It's like, oh, you're not going to oh. give me free money? Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, it's like... <laughs> like, like I, I, <laughs> I don't know how to explain to these guys, man. Like, this is not like, you know, January anymore. Like when DYDX did their drop, it was like, you know, a six-figure airdrop or whatever. But that's because they're, they're, the price they came out at was a $16 billion FDV. Our FDV is, if we did an airdrop right now, our FDV would be like $100 million. So 
you're looking at a difference of what is that 160x like you'll have 160x less money from the dydx server bar so if you've got 10k in dydx you're gonna get like 30 bucks from us and then you're gonna hate us you're gonna be like oh these are the guys that gave me 30 bucks scammers 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 fuck these guys they're useless and i'm like i'm not gonna give you an airdrop for 30 bucks dude you're gonna be pissed off it's not gonna create any value for my platform um you're gonna hate us like it's pointless so i was you know i just said you know we're pushing the airdrop off even if if we even do one we're gonna push it off until like the next bull market happens essentially There's no point in dropping right now. You're just going to destroy the token price for no reason. Yeah. Some dude was like, oh, you know, I need a new motorcycle. And I'm like, bro, you're telling me you're going to sell the token. Like, that's what you're telling me right now. I'm not going to give you an airdrop. Like, you want to sell it. I know you want to dump it. Don't tell me you're going to hold it. So, I want a motorcycle, it. please. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, get out of here. Can I please dump your tokens? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I think air, yeah, the airdrop season. I mean. There's still airdrops happening. Like you had the Doge chain airdrop recently. You have rumors of the Arbitrum airdrop. Like that's mm-hmm. imminent. Like I keep on seeing like threads of like, oh, this is how you can get the Arbitrum airdrop here and there. Like, do you think it's still airdrop season for like certain metas? I'd say the real the real alpha right now is in teasing an airdrop rather than giving one out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. MetaMask is like the king of this, right? Oh They've my been teasing their job for two years and they're just collecting fees. Like they have 1% fees and they just rake in money. Oh, 1%? Um, oh my God. Yeah, dude. It's nice. Something like that. It's a good business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's the, that's the business model on crypto that's really working right now is teasing an airdrop, not giving one, charging fees to make people use your platforms because they think they're going to get an airdrop. It's like the bait. It's just like you have like this like fish rod and you're just like come on here's the airdrop just just pay the fee <laughs> yeah <laughs> speaking of, of getting users i, I want to quickly ask about kind of the other side for zigzag like how did you get the market makers to come on and participate how was that process like um we're we're the biggest market maker on the platform um so we were offering a ton of liquidity already besides that um we had a ton of market makers come on board when they one, there was a way to get passive yield. So we're like, hey, you know, market make this platform, you can get some passive yield. Two, someone put up some fake announcement on some Chinese telegram channel or something. On I think it might have been on like you know, Weibo or something. They put up some posts saying like there's an airdrop if you market make on zigzag. Not true. Never said that. Um no airdrop. Like, Chinese scammer. <laughs> That's the real Chinese scammer right there. That 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 dude's the real, the real scammer, yeah. We had 300 market makers the next day. Wow. Um, 300? Yeah. 300 market makers the next day. And we were overflowing with liquidity. And we're like, what is going on right now? Overflowing. Uh, the site, yeah. The site wasn't designed to handle 300 market makers. So our like server was crashing. And I was like, what's happening? Like, why is this happening? And they're like, oh, some guy said airdrop for Chinese market makers. The best part is these guys don't speak a ton of English. So I could say in English, hey, that's not true. And they don't understand what I'm saying. So... <laughs> Whoever that dude is basically controls Chinese communication. He can say whatever he wants. Have you thought about bringing on a Chinese community person? We have brought on some Chinese community people. Okay. Um, nice. I don't know much about it. Uh, we keep we try and keep like our to keep some sort of like you know decentralization of the thing. We really try and separate our dev and our marketing efforts. So I know nothing about the marketing efforts, and like I don't even know who the Chinese guys are. I just know they kind of exist. Um, I don't run payroll, for instance, so I don't know like what these guys are getting paid or anything like that either. Um, and they don't know much about what's going on on the dev side. So we try and keep things like, you know, everyone does their own thing. And like, 
that way, like, you know, when we start decentralizing, you know, when we get to a point where we're like really letting this thing go and like nobody's in control anymore, it's not that different from the structure we already have. Wow. So you guys are already decentralizing in a sense. Yeah. Like I was, you know, talking to the lawyers like last week or whatever. And they're like, yeah, you know, the the money isn't even like I can't I can't send anyone money from the treasury, for instance, but not even the treasury, but like the, the guys that control the treasury are non like there's there's a ton of stuff that like we're we're quite decentralized like we didn't we don't have a legal entity yet um we're creating one now just for like just for safety reasons um <laughs> just in case but we've gotten this far without an entity and we could probably keep going without an entity like nothing would stop us um yeah i guess like how does uh, zigzag plan on decentralized in the future like are you guys going to do some sort of, sort of DAO? Do you think DAOs are overrated? Like, are you going to do something else that's decentralized but not a DAO? Like, what are you guys thinking? I think the people overstress maybe the DAO portion of the decentralization. What's more important is the decentralization of your tech and your multi-sig. Like, yeah, you know, Whoa. like, uh, here, here's an example of something. Like, you know, like if there's three people on your multi-sig, five people on your multi-sig. You know, I've seen projects like this um, where there's essentially, you know, one or two guys controlling the multi-sig. But you have like DAO voting. Your DAO voting doesn't mean shit. Like I think the greatest example of this is Convex, um, where the votes don't actually even end up translating to this guy actually, you know, implementing any of it. There's one guy who kind of controls the the votes in some sense. Uh, so yeah, like it doesn't matter if you do a DAO if your multi-sig guys decide they don't want to listen to the DAO. So and if your tech isn't decentralized, if you have a centralized server like you know we do right now. Um, then you're not very decentralized. Like, so you've got to think through all of those things first. And the last thing you do is governance. Cause ideally there is no governance. Like the ideal, like Bitcoin is the standard for like decentralization, right? Absolutely no governance. No one, no one does anything. Even Ethereum, there's no governance um, at the base layer, right? Governance is like, I would say a weakness in your protocol, not a strength in some ways. Um, if you need to have governance, then you've got things that need to be governed, which causes politics, which leads to all kinds of issues. Politics, no governance is the idea. Politics yeah. causes friction. Politics causes different contests that might not be the best for you know the future of the platform. Like politics can often be a distraction. So, I I, I can agree with you there that like you know the ultimate goal is like ungovernance, and you see like a few protocols like go towards that direction. Like you know, Rise really championing that. Um, I don't, there's probably a few other ones. I can't think of them. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think in an ideal world, we would freeze the protocol in like two years and then no one would ever touch it again. What do you think of Frax governance? Um, Frax, I don't know. I don't look too much in. They're super active from you know, what I see. Like there's a ton of people voting in the Dow and stuff, but, um, I think they have the same problem we have. Like our problem with any governance is that, you know, there's five of us on the multi-sig. We still have to approve anything. Um, I think there's the similar issue. They have like five people on the multi-sig or something. I might be wrong. I don't actually know much about Frax uh, governance. Yeah, I kind of view the snapshot in a way of like kind of the, the will of the people. And like, let's say like, honestly, if the multi-sig guys go against the snapshot people for whatever reason, like consistently, like it's just going to cause complete disarray. Right. It's kind it's of like, like a, it's like a social contract in a way. Yeah, it's like, a, you know, there's someone with a, a dictator who's like brought in by the will of the people, Yeah. right? Um, a populist dictator. Um, you want to listen to the people. So, you know, you give them some authority to like make decisions, but in the end you decide whether or not to carry out those decisions. 
Um, that's how I see the, the current governance structure in most of DeFi, almost all of DeFi. Um, a benevolent dictator? Yeah, like, you know, a gatekeeper. There's a gatekeeper that can decide when does this stop being a democracy and when does this turn into, you know, an oligarchy of sorts. Yeah, I guess, like, this comes to, like, the question of, like, how do you, like, prevent corruption? Like, or, like, you're, like, I think governments or, like, states or, like, any type of, like, entity that has, like, some governing power faces this problem. It's like, how do we prevent ourselves from being corrupted? How do we present, prevent ourselves from, you know, being taken over by forces that are, you know, not, not like, performing, like, the best actions for all, but performing actions for themselves? Um, and I think that we'll see. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Kit, what, do you, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are, as a decentralized exchange, you guys are probably one of the more core infra that needs to decentralize the tech stack like yeah like, like what you said earlier i i really uh, like that how you you feel like governance is almost like a, a a liability and what's more important is decentralizing your tech stack and making sure that thing can run forever more than the political side of governance um yeah and, and i don't think that's, that's a fresh take. Yeah. yeah i don't think that's emphasized enough and only just started getting emphasized because I think it's easy to romanticize like DAOs and governance and participation in people. It's a good way to like get people involved in crypto. It's a good like onboarding, but is it, we, we can we can ask ourselves, is that like really the best way of, to onboard people? Do people really want to get involved in governance? Because most of the time, like people don't want to vote. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, there's let's say, you know, it's it's a lot easier to vote in a in a DAO vote than it is to like think through and like work on the decentralization of the tech stack. Like there's a lot more people qualified to vote in the DAO. Um, so naturally that's what gets talked about, but it's not always the most important thing. And like one thing, like the, the, the standard bearers to me of like decentralization and DeFi or Uniswap, the way they do things is like, you know, very well done. Um, and they, you know, the governance ends up Uniswap governance, as far as I can tell, no one passes a vote at all. Like, it's designed to almost be ungovernable. Uh, <laughs> you need like, yeah, like something like that's really nice. I think the way they've done things is good. Ungovernance by commit, <laughs> basically, in a sense. Got it. Um, just for the the folks at home, and frankly for myself too, T, could you explain how would one go about decentralizing the tech stack? Could you break it up piece by piece, just so like you know, folks get more educated on what that really means? Sure. Okay, so for us, it would mean you have vaults, you have the ability for any engineer that wants to start um, creating like, you know, pricing schemes to create their own vaults and for users to deposit liquidity into those vaults. So ideally, we have 10 to 15 vaults at minimum. Um, people are offering different pricing schemes, different coins off of each of these vaults. Um, there's different people um, contributing to the order book or whatever. And then users are choosing, they're grabbing all these pricing schemes from some kind of descent, some kind of swarm of servers. Because um, the market makers do need some kind of router to like send their quotes through. So ideally, there's not just one server, there's like four or five, and they're all, you know, hosted somewhere where they're kind of safe from being taken down. Um, and the front end does, you know, it takes in all these quotes and then it decides what to send up to the chain and then close an order. 
Okay. So if I can understand that correctly, you have the vault decentralized, then you have the, um, routing decentralized, and then you have yep. the, uh, front end UI also kind of decentralized, like kind of how liquidity has it, where there's a bunch of like different front end UIs. Um, I would say the front end you like, it's, it's kind of tricky, I guess. Like the, the dot ETH dot links are kind of nice. Like tornado cash right now, the way they're hosted, like the way you access it is tornado cash dot ETH dot link. Right. Um, I think that's like the best system so far for not getting taken down. Um, some kind of like ENS like hosting scheme. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And this kind of goes into, um, what, uh, I saw this thread from Doug Colkit of, uh, Crocswap yesterday and he was he basically said like there's no way that an order book can be sustainable on a, on a general purpose chain but it sounds like you disagree with that because there's other ways for like an order book to decentralize and that's through the text uh stack whether it's like yeah swarm can you explain like swarm of servers a little bit more too and also like i remember we were like we had a conversation the other day about like consensus mechanism can you go into that too yeah um so in this thread, this like a, the, the one you said, he specifically said what you can't do is an on-chain order book. And on that point, I think he's right. Okay. You can, you can do it on Solana because the fees are super low and the throughput is super high. Um, and that's what Serum is. Um, but if you, on any of these other, you know, L2s or L1s, I don't think it's feasible because the fees are too high. Um, what he doesn't cover is can you build an order book at all in a decentralized system so if it's not on chain it can still be decentralized right you can have some sort of consensus mechanism around the orders that not even consensus mechanism just some way of like it's like a torrent that's what i would say like our the way i imagine these swarm of servers or whatever is just like i've mapped out the code in my head of how exactly these servers work they're like 100 lines of code and they have no dependencies so it's super easy to spin up a server to use one of these things. That means anyone can, you know, start offering a router. Um, and if there's an incentive to offer the router, like maybe the protocol offers some kind of incentive to run a router. Yeah, maybe they get um, like a fee or something. Right, exactly. Yeah, maybe they get some something like that. Um, then you could have like, you know, people spinning up routers and stuff like that. And then the front end could choose to connect to multiple routers and start like aggregating quotes. Um, and if you have that, then you have a system where if one router gets taken down, another one just pops up to replace it. It sounds um, like routers are the equivalent to nodes. Yeah, exactly. It's okay. very much like that. Yeah. If you have lots of nodes in the system, like, you know, you only need one, like the, you only need one working node in order for the system to continue running. Could this like um, be a way that like the zigzag token could have utility like as a reward? Like how you write it um, order? Yeah. Yeah, the zigzag token is going to be I mean, I don't instead of having utility like what it's gonna be is it's just gonna be a all the fees are gonna go to the zigzag token. Um so that's where I guess the utility of the zigzag token comes in is it's just a security. It receives all the the fees from the protocol. Um yeah, maybe in some ways, yeah, using it as a reward for people to run routers and stuff like that is a good use. That would, that could be a good use of governance. Um, ideally, though, it's baked into the protocol somehow. Like there is no governance required. You just get, you know, for routing an order, you get some kind of specified fee or something like that. Got it. 
Yeah, that, yeah. I like the idea of like routers, like having like this decentralized system of routers. Um, and also like goes back to like what you're saying, like kind of your when you got into crypto and Bitcoin in 2013, it sounds like you want to continue this Bitcoin ethos, but into a decentralized exchange as an order book, which I find like really fascinating. You're continuing like, and actually like, honestly, kudos to you for like continuing like this tradition. This crypto, this crypto tradition that was started by Satoshi and like, you know, and passed on to Vitalik and like other people are trying to do it. And like, it sounds like you're like definitely on the right path and like with the ethos, both like from a tech stack and also from like a governance stack, but also you guys care about usability as well, which is something like a lot of protocols often tend to forget. They have to like so make something that people like want to use and come back to. And you don't sacrifice that. Yeah. Um, I'd say in DeFi, like, there's a lot. Of, I'm one of the few people that like my entire crypto holdings is in Bitcoin. Um, I'm still a huge Bitcoin believer, Interesting. Um, but I work in DeFi. Yeah. So I think that's something you don't I don't see a lot of at least. Uh, wait, can you can you explain that further? Like what? Why is that your position? Why not hold everything in ETH? Um, to me, ETH is extremely volatile. Um, there's there's a weird feedback mechanism in ETH, right? Um, when the price when you know when the cycle is up more gas fees get burned the pe looks better um the tokenomics are better and the price goes even higher like there's a huge reflexive effect on the way up that same reflexive effect occurs on the way, on down. The way down gas okay. fees go way down burns go down the supply kind of increases in some ways and it's a very low depth so i don't really like like i have enough of an unstable life like having myself exposed to zigzag so much i don't want to expose the majority of my net worth to something that's extremely volatile like that what i do is i either move into bitcoin or I move the dollars like constantly back and forth not constantly but like once every three months or so i'll take a trade like ideally bitcoin would be less volatile i don't want to hold cash bitcoin is kind of a you know even even on that end it's a little volatile but at least i feel good about leaving my money in bitcoin like i feel like you know I'm not going to hit too many swings on the way in and out. Have you been, um, yeah. Have you been keeping track of the Bitcoin community and what's been going on there? Cause I really don't know too much. I just see like Bitcoin maximalists scream on Twitter, but I know that isn't all of Bitcoin. So like what? It's, yeah. It, it's completely pointless. Like the whole point of Bitcoin right now is that we're not going to change the code anymore. It's just going to be like that, like almost forever. Right. Like Taproot. I don't think anybody uses Taproot. I don't think anybody cared about Taproot. Um, the whole idea is you just sit there and you like hold your money for the next hundred years. Okay. The problem is when you sit there and you hold your money for the next hundred years, you have nothing to do. Like you're sitting there, you know, your thesis is already made for the rest of your life in some ways. Like I'm going to hold Bitcoin. Like sailors thing is I'm going to hold Bitcoin. Okay. What's there to say about that? There's nothing to say about that beyond a certain point. So yeah. you just end up with this like, you know, community of people just kind of like getting bored and like getting, you know, into arguments for no reason. Like that's the way I see Bitcoin Maxi. There's no point in engaging with them. Their their entire philosophy is very like it's done. Like it's you done. know exactly. Yeah, it's done. There's nothing left to do in Bitcoin. So what do you do? You just sit there and argue about stuff. All right, yeah, don't bother with them. Like go do something else. Um, okay, so yeah. what, I don't think they're wrong yet. Yeah. No, it's it's like a it's a respectable position just to be only in Bitcoin, um, and all and that's it. Like I agree. But like I and I also agree, like, but that's it. There's nothing else to go or explain from there or argue from there. Um, but like, do you know what else is going on? Like within, I guess, like, so in terms of 
like Bitcoin development, there's like nothing going on. Like, I, like what about maintaining the code? Like, what about just like at like in the same way that like with the internet, you have all these different protocols, like you know, HTTPS and like what the whole like internet service provider stack. Like, people are like maintaining all that. Like, is that happening with Bitcoin too? Like, do you know how that's happening at all? Uh, with these servers and things like that, um, with like the the underlying infrastructure, there's physical wear and tear, so you have to maintain physical infrastructure. And um, the code kind of does get updated every once in a while at these, even at these core levels. Um, and mm -hmm. servers, you know, a lot of it is just like keeping servers running. There's like physical infrastructure deteriorates. Bitcoin, there's no physical infrastructure except for the miners. So the miners need to get maintained. But that's mining companies. They're doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. They're not, they're rarely getting into Bitcoin maximum base because they have work to do. You know, they have work to do. Yeah. yeah. They're not going to sit there and argue on the internet, but. In terms of the Bitcoin core protocol itself, it's like almost like a victim of its own success where it's so well designed um, and it maintains itself so well because of like the incentive to run a node, the, you know, the kind of you can't take down the network itself because there's so many different copies of the blockchain and stuff. And the code is kind of at a point where no one wants to update it. Um, I don't think there's a ton of maintenance that goes into it. I think everyone just, everything just kind of happens naturally. It's just a very well-designed no. system in that way. Do you think Bitcoin maximalists are actually hurtful to Bitcoin? Like people are just like, oh, I don't want, we even want to be like around it or like even take part or hold Bitcoin because of like the community around it. I think Bitcoin maxis are a net positive to the crypto ecosystem for one reason. And that's they're the buyer of last resort. Like if crypto uh, goes to absolute shit, Bitcoin maxis are the buyer of last resort. So good point. Hmm. In order to, you know, the problem is 99% of the time, they're just sitting there like talking a lot and no one wants to listen to them. But that 1% of time, like, you know, the price is going down to 3000 and we're like, oh no, it's crypto going to survive. Those are the guys that are like, oh, I'm going to DCA a little bit into Bitcoin right now. And we're like, great. They're like the last, the marginal <laughs> buyer of last resort. So we need those guys. We just have to suffer through them for the rest of the time. For the rest yeah, of yeah. eternity, we must suffer. Yeah. <laughs> it's honestly, the trade-off is, is worth it. Uh, like it's like two extremes one is like you have to be annoyed as hell with them but also like when it when crypto is like in the absolute gutter of the most gutter of the gutter like they're the ones that are going to like be fighting in the trenches yeah interesting um do you think bitcoin will move to proof of stake or do you think it'll just be proof of work no i think no one will ever pass like no, i don't think any code will get added to bitcoin like anytime uh, yeah soon. Definitely not proof of stake. Personally, for me, I think it should say proof of work. I think there's something yeah. very elegant of turning pure energy into currency. Like that, yeah. and that's what like currency, that's what money is. Money is just potential energy. All right. Were you going to ask something? Yeah, I was just, I'm, I'm really, um, you know, I'm impressed by how T keeps his net worth in Bitcoin, but yet he is building literally on the bleeding edge of like ETH tech. <laughs> yeah, like the I, most bleed. You would think that like he would just have like a bunch of ETH and like have his net worth right. in ETH, but like you you never hear anyone like take a step back and explain like why they don't. It's like oh, like ETH is like super reflexive, and honestly, ETH is super reflexive because it's more of a commodity like oil. It's literally so, you know, and we all see how volatile oil can be. It's the, it's the opposite of oil. Oh, it's the it's, opposite of oil. Well, think about it. Oil has. I'm thinking. It's. it's I'm thinking of like fuel. It, it, I'm thinking of like fuel. Like it's like and you know you need like gas to spend. So that's why I said oil. Okay, you're thinking about it the opposite way then. Okay, so when oil prices go high, 
more oil output gets turned up, right? There's a mechanism designed for oil prices to come back down because demand goes down and supply goes up when the price goes up of oil. You know, for commodities, they, they say the, the answer to high prices is high prices, right? And the, the same thing on the lower end. When oil prices come down, then rigs come offline, supply comes down, demand goes up because all of a sudden oil is really cheap, and there's a balancing mechanism to bring the price back up. ETH is the opposite of that. So you take the volatility of oil and then you make it reflexive. So it's like when the price goes up, there's like more, ETH gets used more when the price goes up. It's not like, you know, demand goes up. It's like, you know, there's no explanation for it. It just is like yet more more ETH gets burned. The supply gets constrained even further when the price goes up. And then on the down, way down, the supply opens up. So even more and more ETH becomes available because there's less and less of it being burned. So it's like the opposite of a commodity where like a commodity has a price balancing mechanism and ETH has like a price anti-stability mechanism built into it. Wait, I'm trying to understand that again. I kind of just floated off. So like ETH is like the opposite of commodities because like instead of it going like oh, the higher it goes, like demand goes down, like the higher it goes, demand goes higher. And when the, the when like the lower it goes, demand goes like even lower. Is that what you're saying? I would say, yeah, I think the demand side is the wrong way to look at it. I should have said that. Like the supply goes up. The The supply supply goes down as the price goes up. And the supply goes up as the price goes down. Oh, oh, okay. So it's like the opposite. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Whoa. So what do you think of like ETH 1559? I mean, I think it was good for the protocol because it gives the protocol like a base, like value, like one issue with ETH was always like, should it be worth anything? Um, and the answer is clearly yes now. Um, so I think that was good. I think the merge will be good too because it'll bring down the supply and stuff. Um, but, you know, the fluctuations will happen at a higher price rather than not happen. So there's the, still going to be giant fluctuations in the price. So these fluctuations will continue even like after the merge? Like, let's say like ETH goes to like mid five digits. Do you see it like acting the same way even after the, the merge yeah wow and actually i'd be curious what you guys think of like do you see any crypto ever stabilizing out like besides stable coins do you see crypto ever being a market that's like stable if it gets large enough um i feel like it's too complicated to be stable it is like doing too many things to be it's not that ETH is co- okay let me take that back i feel like ETH has like a lot of different uses for it to be stable um Bitcoin is just like straight up money. So could it be stable? I don't, I feel like people will always be speculating on it. Maybe like over time it will become more stable, but if it's digital gold, then like, you know, I think it won't be like a hundred percent stable. Let, let, I don't, I don't know. What do you think, Kit? I have to I, think I, about I, it more. Yeah. I think we should define stable, right? T- yeah. What do you define as stable? Do you mean like, mm, okay. Uh, let's say, let's call the S and P stable. Let's say, you know, the S and P against the dollar is stable, like, uh, only 20 and I, okay, let's just mark it against the dollar. Cause we don't have a choice right now. Um, some kind of, you know, 20 to 30% band within annually within the, against the dollar. I think so. I, I think I Bitcoin can do that. Yeah. As it matures yeah. over time. Yeah. I, I think the, the majors would kind of graduate into that just because of the nature of the holders because it comes down to the least common denominator amongst all the holders, right? If it becomes, 
if ETH makes its way into the endowment funds and the institutions and the CalPERS and CalSTRS, like, then it kind of acts as if how all the other assets has acted previously in their portfolio, I feel. Okay. So, so, you, th th yeah, so you think I'm, ETH will yeah. stabilize? Oh, I think ETH or BT, anything that, because it comes down to who holds it at the end. Like it's not, you know, it, it kind of dilutes away what it is. It kind of comes into who's holding it at the end of the day. Uh, I remember I, I heard it on um, the, the, the all-in pod where Chamath was saying how, how Facebook is the majority holders of Facebook are all these pension funds and institution funds. And when everything else rallied, Facebook didn't really rally because all those guys took that chance to take profits on Facebook. So even though uh, the, the fundamentals of the whole market is moving, the holders of this asset is actually the one that really dictates the band so, that it moves in. Oh, so you basically think like it's the holders that determine how volatile it will be. So like once like Ethereum and like Bitcoin are just straight up held in pension funds, then like the bands would be smaller. Yeah, that's my take on it. That's a good, that's a good take. Yeah. Was your ST? Um, I don't know. I think that's convincing. Yeah. Uh, the holders are, yeah. If the holders are going to be pension funds and stuff and they're not going to sell except in like, you know, to dampen volatility in some way, then why not have a, yeah. Like, like I my, mean, I, I just wanted to add this, like, um, I haven't really fleshed this out, but it's just been kind of mulling in my head at the beginning of this year. It's like, you know how, there was a whole narrative of corporations adding crypto into their treasury. Well, I, I think the <laughs> even more bullish case would be like, you know, corporations adding ETH into their OPEX as if like, hey, I need to hold ETH for me to pay for gas or pay for anything that I would do on chain yeah. as like an operating expenditure, you know, which isn't like this one time purchase and be done. It's going to be a continuous flow of buying pressure. Because, well, it's operating expenditure. They need to operate. So they need to buy it and operate. I think, do you guys ever envision a future where that kind of becomes a thing where a corporation has to purchase network like DAOs, tokens yeah. or utility tokens or, or DAOs, whatever, you know, but just. Yeah, yeah um, no, for sure. Like, like massive, think, massive entities yeah. having to purchase a lot of these tokens just to operate. Yeah. I, I definitely see that happening. To be honest, like in terms of like the volatility of like Bitcoin and Ethereum, I don't have too much looking. I don't have too much of an opinion about it because I just like don't know. I can just like guess and speculate. But in terms of like what's like real and like what like is in the immediate future, like yeah, like stuff costs gas on chain, so it makes sense that people would categorize it as an operating expense. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. Like if you're a financial institution and ethereum is the rails that you're using then you know it'll be just like any other commodity that you keep on your balance sheet you just like if you hedge with oil futures yeah. like if you're southwest airlines or something right you're hedging oil yep. futures all the time to lock in rates why not like you know hedge in your eth futures like yeah right in some kind of rate that you can pay right so yeah i can see and taro do you see i something i've been thinking about too is like do you see bitcoin being used by sovereign nations i mean i feel like that's pretty logical in, in like the future like a sovereign nation will accept like you know bitcoin for oil bitcoin for cobalt or bitcoin for lithium instead of dollars or instead uh, of something else yeah i think i think how it would go is 
Yeah, I could see it. I could see it definitely because gold is kind of hard to transport. If you're like the Congo, nobody wants to use your currency. Um, and what does that leave you? You, know, you can either be on the dollar, which you probably don't care. You know, you stay on the dollar for as long as you can. And if you get sanctioned or something because of some, you know, human rights abuse or something or, you know, whatever the latest administration decides they want to sanction you on, uh, then you can switch to, you know, Bitcoin, which is a lot simpler than gold. Yeah. But if you want to take that risk. Yeah. I think like for like major institutions, whether they're sovereign entities or multinational corporations, like in like transacting in Bitcoin, Ethereum or like, you know, or whatever else, like I could see that happening. But for like the everyday person that's like going to buy milk at the grocery store, I don't really see them using Bitcoin or ETH or anything to like buy. I see them using a stable coin or some other type of, you know, other type of stable asset. So what's your take on like free floating stable assets, like a post dollar world that like everyday people interact in? Post dollar world. All yeah. right, cool. Let's do this. I don't think a post dollar world exists. You don't um, think it will exist in our lifetimes? In yeah. our in our oh, um, unpopular because like I feel like people would love to romanticize that. Yeah, I think. I mean, what does a post-dollar world mean? It means the U.S. loses like military supremacy in the world, right? I'm not a military expert. I'm not going to go off like you know, pretending I know what I'm talking about. But like, I don't see it happening. Like, the only case in which you see the dollar being challenged is if both the Chinese get large enough military to like start policing their own area. Their population doesn't collapse. They can actually sustain that kind of thing. And they uh, they open up their capital accounts, which is like an insanity for the CCP to be like, oh, we're going to be an open currency that anyone can trade. I mean, <laughs> like, it sounds like no, wide, that's, you know, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Their ethos. So like, what are you left with? You're left with the euro or the dollar. The euro is like, <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. Like, <laughs> I, maybe it could collapse, right? Like the euro could collapse in the next 20 years, like five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever. Like, yeah, it's a possibility. So like that leaves the dollar as like, you know, long-term stability. If you want to buy a 20 year bond, what do you want to buy? You probably want to buy the dollar. So. So you see the dollar dollar is king. Yeah. I, I'm a believer in the, there's a dollar milkshake theory, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you explain I'm what I'm that is for the yeah, viewers? Dollar milkshake yeah. Theory, yeah. I mean, I'm not, you know, Okay, so, so from what I understand of it, dollar milkshake theory is just like if there's some kind of sovereign debt crisis, how does it work exactly? It essentially means the world is short dollars. Like any kind of loans or leverage you take means you're short dollars. So in the case of like, you know, a lot like what happens right now is like you issue a bond and then you roll that bond over um, because rates are low. So you keep rolling the bonds over and you take new loans out instead of paying back your loans. Mm -hmm. If rates go high, like they're about to go right now, Let's say interest rates get up to 6%. It's not so attractive to roll that loan over anymore. Okay, so you want to just repay the loan in dollars. What does that mean? You need to go out and buy, buy dollars, dollars in the market. Yeah. So, and a lot of, there's a lot of dollar denominated loans in the market. So the idea is that as interest rates go up, like, you know, over the next few years, there's a real crunch of dollars all over the world because everyone does dollar bonds to be, you know, no one, dollar bonds are very common across the world. Um, so you just start seeing the dollar becoming more and more like a wrecking ball, just like taking out, emerging countries because yeah they it just gets stronger and stronger as it goes why is um, it why is it the term milkshake is it gonna be like a green milkshake i don't know some guy came up with it like you know oh, yeah, that guy know, or yeah. the term or it's something. like yeah. shaken up or something like oh it's catchy In, yeah i wish you know you if you guys find someone who can like explain it real well that'd be cool i don't i don't actually like you know 
fully understand it. I do understand the world is short dollars. That's kind of my like overall conception of things um, because there's a ton of loans denominated in dollars. And like as interest rates go up, it's going to cause problems. Yeah. Like, it's funny. I kind of view like the spread of currency similar to the spread of languages. It's like right now, like English dominates the world. Um, and like in the same way that like, dollars dominates the world. And like that's all depended on like the power, the power at the time that is propagating both. So like in order for like China to like dominate the world, like Chinese will have to like propagate. And like what are the chances of Chinese becoming like the lingua franca in our lifetime? It's I mean, I think it will like become like a bigger force, especially with like the whole Belt and Road Initiative. But, um, you know, if the yuan still has these type of controls, like, I'm not sure, you know, how it could, it may, who knows, maybe we're wrong. Maybe like enough countries like are, you know, transact with China and like it becomes like wider and wider use the yuan. But like if they have these capital controls, like you said, like, could, could it scale up with, and I'm not sure if it can. Okay. Languages. I think one common miscon you know, misconception on languages is that they're all kind of the same. And like, it's just an accident that English is the lingua franca of the world. Um, I think it's not that simple. I think languages compete just like currencies. No, do. that's why I agree. Um, I agree with you on that. Yeah. And I think like, like it's funny, Lee Kuan Yew, like the, uh, the head of Singapore, like during their whole like transformation, he specifically converted the country to English first, not just because the world spoke English, but because, I mean, that was, that was the primary reason, but also because he said English was like the easiest language for people to learn. Like Chinese is a very difficult language for people to learn. Mm -hmm. um, it's got tonalities and stuff like that. So there's a lot, a high barrier to Chinese becoming like a lingua franca versus something like English. Yeah, that's true. And also like English is the language of computer programming. I'm not sure if that matters, but I guess. Yeah, yeah I mean, a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. There's, you know, most of the, most of the code ends up being like, you know, small little worlds, you know, I've seen guys like write comments completely in Russian or something like that. And they're like, the only parts of their code that are in English are like the little syntaxes that go like for loop, if that kind of stuff. They're literally building their own universes with logic. You love to see it. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your macro, like speaking of like macro, what's your macro outlook for the next like year, two years or a few years? Um, I think we just kind of chop along at these levels for another like year. Um, maybe some kind of major wipeout at the end of the year, if it happens. Ooh. But like, I'm currently, a, you know, my net worth is, I was all in Bitcoin all the way up until a week ago. And I sold all of my Bitcoin at like 25K, like on the way up, on the kind of the little pump we had. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm all in dollars right now. And my macro overall macro thesis is just that the dollar is going to be really strong for the next while. I might be wrong. I don't know. I mean, I, I change my mind on this stuff pretty quickly. So like if I see Bitcoin going up, I like I'm a pure technical <laughs> analyst in that sense. Like if I see the number starting to look good, I'll just switch over to Bitcoin. But I don't, know, I don't really have a macro thesis outside of like there's not a lot of liquidity in the system. I don't see that changing. So I don't see the number going up anytime soon. Yeah. So do you kind of separate like the U.S. like into like the dollar like and its dominance like economically and monetarily around the world from like its government. I mean, I might sound like stupid here, but like if like the government seems like there's like a lot of friction, but like the dollar still like dominating. You would one would like assume that like both are like should be going up and down the same, but like if one's getting stronger and the other's getting like more friction, like I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Does that make sense? Yeah, like I think the the dollar. 
I think it matters. The government matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, how effective your government is. I think it's though like we complain a lot about our government here, but we, you know you have to compare relatively to like governments around the world. And when it comes down to it, the dollar is still better managed than other currencies. Um, just from like a financial perspective, even if you know, like what do we argue about here in America? We argue about like guns and we have inflation now because we spent too much. We have a ton of debt and things like that. Um, but I don't think those, you know, I think those problems are probably not as bad as the problems everywhere else in the world. Yeah. It's like, I guess we have like a big, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. A big thing we have is like, we have oil and gas production in, in the country. Um, so that's always going to, you know, protect us during like really bad times. Um, Europe doesn't have that. So they're going to, you know, they're going to suffer a lot in that sense. Um, Russia is always going to be kind of insulated from the world because they have their own oil and gas. China is incredibly dependent on the rest of the world. So like, if you're looking at our main competitor, China, we're self-sufficient energy wise. If we wanted to be, we could be self-sufficient energy wise. China's very dependent on the outside world, um, for the basic, like, you know, oil and gas stuff. So do they have a lot of lithium though? Yeah, but what does lithium gain you, right? Like, um, lithium is nice to build electric cars, but if you don't have oil, like, what do you do? Like, you're not going to, electric cars aren't going to take over the world. There's not enough lithium, first of all, to even like build enough electric cars to like run all of China. Um, but also like, you know, it's a secondary thing to me. Like oil and gas to me is like the basis of what the world runs on. I don't see how that changes anytime soon. Do you see, um, and I, do, I don't think China has access to that. Do you see like any alternatives like nuclear coming about? Like really taking yeah, if over? Yeah, we have the political will to do it, then yeah, we could make nuclear kind of work. Um, but, you know, barring that, like China's going really hard on nuclear is what I've heard. Um, yeah. Maybe they'll make more for that. I think Japan just announced they're building a new nuclear plant as well. Okay. Yeah. It would be cool if like one day the whole world's on chain and I, we can trade like oil and gas futures on ZigZag. <laughs> that would be... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a completely decentralized way. Yeah. That'd be the ideal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping we get to it. Yeah. So, so speaking of that, uh, I want to ask you, what does success look like for ZigZag to you? Mm. The protocol generates fees and gets a lot of volume. Uh, just if people use the product, I'm happy. Uh, and it's decentralized in the long run. Do you have a number, like a total number of fees generated lifetime, total number of average volume, and any kind of... Is uh, users, like a ranking? Is that like a metric yeah, that you just kind of yearn for? Yeah. Today in my head, I see like Uniswap on Arbitrum, and I'm like, they do $40 million a day. Okay, so if we do $40 million a day, then we're doing pretty good. Okay. That's what I'm going for. We're at $2 million right now on Arbitrum, so we got a ways to go. Oh, you mean like Uniswap does $40 million on Arbitrum a day? Yeah. Okay. Good baby steps, baby steps. Okay. Yeah. The march to yeah. $40 million begins. Okay. Yeah. What, is your biggest, <laughs> what is your biggest critique of DeFi right now? Did we go over it before? Like, What would you say is the biggest critique of DeFi in general? Biggest critique of DeFi? Uh, uh, that a lot of the, I mean, this doesn't apply to everyone, but a lot of the financial models are like just flawed, um, in DeFi. Like the, my favorite one recently was, um, who were the guys that were lending out like money against like NFTs or something? Bend. Bend. Yeah. Bend. Right. So like they had a bunch of liquidations and like nobody bought them or something. Right. Yeah. Or maybe it was either way. Like, I don't. It might have worked out that one time, but like it says literally in their like 
technical docs, they're like, okay, so like, what happens if, you know, a loan goes bad? Oh, don't worry. The price will go back up. That's literally the answer in their docs. It will go back up. (laughs) Actually, no. (laughs) (laughs) The price might not go back up. Then what? Oh, okay. The protocol screwed. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, Dave, are are you ready to wrap or do you have a couple more questions on your end? Um, I I have one more question. I'm still like, so like one more thing. I'm still like really fascinated with the fact that like you're at the edge of DeFi, like ZK Sync, like learning Cairo and shit and also like own Bitcoin and like, or like, you know, Bitcoin, you're like a Bitcoin, not like a maximalist, but kind of like a fundamentalist in a sense but like are still open to other things. Like what is your response to like ETH Maxwell's out there that's just like everything like has to be in ETH. Like ETH is the future, ETH is this and that. I think ETH maximalism is like the most retarded form of maximalism. <laughs> like Bitcoin maximalism, I kind of get, all right, there's a money and you're saying that the financials, DeFi is just all bogus. Okay, that's like, it's a position, even if it's not one I agree with. ETH maximalism is saying DeFi exists. For some reason, Bitcoin is worth nothing. Um, but, you know, like DeFi exists and no other chain will ever be like Ethereum. Well, why not? Like, you know, why isn't Solana useful? Um, why doesn't Cosmos have a place in the world? Like, if you're saying DeFi exists, at that point, you're also admitting other alt, you know, other L1s could also exist. Uh, that, I don't get that one. Like, ETH maximalism to me is like the worst form of maximalism. Yeah, I guess like the response for that would be like, you know, what's the point of other chains? We can just have a roll up and just have like, have the chain as a roll up and have the security on ETH. Well, that's kind of like, you know, Bitcoin maxis in 2013 be like, well, why do you need Ethereum? You just, you know, roll it up onto Bitcoin or whatever, you know, do DeFi on Bitcoin. Um, but also like L2s are, there is a security trade-off on an L2. Um, all that money gets stored into a smart contract and there's a chance that that smart contract does not have good code. Um, L2s aren't magic, you know, there's a bridge in an L2 also in a smart contract and that smart contract could get hacked. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, there's a lot of people who are very hesitant to move their money to L2s because of that. Yeah. Um, so as long as there's limited block space in Ethereum, there's going to be like demand for block space in other, other chains as well. I think. And what's your take on like, because there's like an effort for Bitcoin on DeFi, like there's stacks and there's other things. Like, do you think that should just be like thrown away altogether and like Bitcoin should just like become this like conservative position of like we're just money you know you know if you want like a safe place to like store your value here it is like what's your take on bitcoin on DeFi and stuff like that like can there be like a zk also i heard things like zk like you have a zk roll up on bitcoin i don't know if like or like they were talking about something about zk and bitcoin i'm not sure but what's your take on bitcoin and DeFi and like possible like if they're hypothetically if you could have roll-ups on bitcoin would that (laughs) where would your take be on that I think you should never modify Bitcoin to make it like Ethereum, where there's a ton of like transactions that use up like block space that aren't just regular transfers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But if you did something like a ZK rollup where it was just a commitment once every few hours um, and it was really minimal and it was able to like resolve to the main Bitcoin chain somehow, that sounds kind of viable to me. Um, Interesting. I don't see why you couldn't do that. Yeah. But also, like, you'd have to get Bitcoin to agree to, like, a lot of the problems with this stuff is, like, you have to modify the Bitcoin-based protocol in order to do it, which is, like, a years-long affair. So it's just, like, 
why even bother when like it's experimental tech and you need to like iterate on it really quickly? Why it's even like bother when yeah. you can, it's not yeah, meant you to. Know, yeah. Do it on Ethereum instead, right? Yeah. Like Bitcoin and Ethereum basically basically exist in this yin and yang. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Agree with that. Yeah, Kent, I say we're ready to wrap up. All righty. So T, normally at the end of these things, we do a round of rapid fire questions. Um, so I'm going to start, I'm going to hit you with the first one. When did you first touch the chain and sex don't count? Touch the chain. Uh, which chain? Bitcoin your, or Ethereum? Any, your virgin crypto experience. First time I touched the chain, I sent a Bitcoin transaction in like 20... No, 2017, 2017, yeah. That was the first time I touched the chain. Wait, what about, I thought you said you were like developing and coding in like 2016. <laughs> or like, or were 2016? you... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, n I never touched the chain on any of those stuff. So I had all my money on Coinbase until like January of 2017. Oh, oh. interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Next question. So what do you like to do off chain? Like, what do you like to do when you're not coding? Uh, work out, uh, play Frisbee, um, go for walks, runs. Yeah. Eat food. <laughs> Just stuff. be a human. <laughs> Touch grass. Um, Touch grass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. If you weren't in crypto, what would you be doing professionally? Ooh. Uh, I think I'd be in robotics because that's what I was in before crypto. But I would like to be in energy. That seems to be like the place to be for the next 20 years. Okay. I'm curious. What kind of robotics? Like... Uh, I was working on like an indoor, uh, indoor mapping system. So like, uh, it's a robot that runs around like maps, internal warehouses. So you can start doing like automated, like, uh, inventory management. Wow. Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite food? What's your favorite cuisine? Indian food. Mm. Coffee or tea? Neither. I don't drink caffeine. Oh. No, no monster, no energy drinks, not, none of that. No, no. Just sleep like 10 hours a day instead. What is some advice you'd give to your younger self? Uh, start a company earlier. Don't wait. Don't wait. Uh, yeah. You'll screw up the first one, so you might as well get it over with. It's <laughs> really cool. good advice. And the last question, is, is there anything that you want the viewers to know about zigzag um it's got the best the best prices on arbitrum um for eth and btc so if you really care about price execution you should come to zigzag yeah and where can people find you and zigzag online uh my twitter is shit uh uh zigzag exchange for for us and the website is trade.zigzag.exchange and then my personal twitter is toro underscore 21 nice 21 i see why <laughs> yeah yeah toro it's been an awesome conversation i definitely feel smarter from it thanks for coming on and we'll have you on next time and excited to see where zigzag goes cool guys thanks thanks, thanks for man. Me on. appreciate thanks. you thanks 
everyone. That was this week's edition of Flywheel with Tarot, the founder of ZigZag Exchange. And Kit, do you have any final thoughts from this week's episode? Man, I'm super excited to see, you know, uh, T on his march to 40 million in volume. You know, the like march I, to I, 40 million. I, the march to 40 million. I can't wait to have him back on for that. I think it's a milestone to celebrate. Yeah, and I can't wait to see how ZigZag evolves because he like is operating from a principle is like, okay, let's like make this as decentralized as possible. Yeah. And he's a full stack decentralized person, not just like in, go- in like DAOs and governance, but he views decentralization primarily in a technical way, which I think a lot of people should think more of. Yeah, I, I think folks should go back and re-listen to that part and really, because, you know, not a lot of pe- people here are technical. I think it's very critical for us yeah. to understand that technical decentralization is also as important as as important as governance decentralization. Yeah, and I feel like when liquidity is looking for a place on L2s, especially Arbitrum, like ZigZag is going to be one of the main venues for it to go to. Right. And, and also for the devs out there, the alpha is to go for the hardest language so that you can monopolize and be early, as we learn from yeah. T. Yeah. Don't be afraid to challenge yourselves. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us on our podcast socials like Pod, yeah, like Spotify, like Apple. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at FlywheelPod. Uh, join our Telegram group at FlywheelPod. Follow me on Twitter at DeFiDave22. You can follow me at 0xCapital underscore K. And we'll see you next time. Peace.